This is the Small Moves Podcast with Jason Hertzberger, episode 18. Oh, what you know, Joe? I don't know nothing. What you know, Joe? Tell me something. I should probably quit while I'm ahead. You're listening to the Small Moves Podcast. Small steps for big progress. With your host, Jason Hertzberger. Your, your next step starts now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Small Moves Podcast. I'm really glad you're here. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's leading source of audio entertainment. I've been a subscriber to Audible forever, and I go through way more audiobooks on a yearly basis than my, you know, bank account would probably approve of. But anyway, um, big fan. And I have to tell you that they are offering a special offer to the listeners of the Small Moves podcast where you can get a free audiobook and a 30 day free trial with Audible by going to smallmoves.co forward slash audiobooks, uh, a book that I recommend that I think is interestingly appropriate for our conversation today um, is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Some of you might know Stephen Pressfield for his fiction writing. Um, he's quite well known for his fiction writing, um, Gates of Fire, among others. Uh, but this book was flooring for me when I came across it. And it was been it's been an incredibly highly touted book. The general topic of it is how difficult it is to make good art, to create good creative work, and what you can do to sort of overcome the barriers or what Stephen Pressfield calls resistance to go ahead and move forward and make your best work, whether that be creative work or fiction work or nonfiction work. This can apply to business. This can apply to your personal life. This can apply to any creative endeavor. Um, I have to tell you that this book was actually quite influential in me finally getting off my butt and getting this podcast launched after dwelling on it for over two years. Um, highly recommend this book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Go to smallmoves.co forward slash audiobooks, sign up and go ahead and download this book or any of the other nearly half a million other books that you can choose from. That being said, today's guest is none other than Joe Hofberg. Joe is someone that if you don't run in the international Lindy Hop or blues dance scenes, you may not necessarily know her name, but you should. She is an incredible talent. She has got an amazing perspective on building a business that you can take with you anywhere in the world. In her case, literally anywhere in the world. She is home free, as she describes herself. She literally doesn't necessarily have a home. She is a full-time international traveling Lindy Hop dance instructor. She is an incredible person. She has one of the 
funniest sense of humors that I've come across in quite a while. Um, not too many people can match my level of dryness when it comes to sense of humor, but Joe absolutely blows me out of the water in that category. So I really appreciated that among many other things. Um, this interview was great. She talks about sort of her background and how she was a championship level diver, a championship level fencing competitor when she was younger, but decided to get more involved in the Lindy hop dancing because she was tired of being in, being so good at sports that were solo where they, as they tended to breed something of a bit of a loneliness to them. Um, she has taken the ball and really run with it. She's one of the best dancers that I have ever seen. For those of you that know me, I am a Lindy hopper myself. So I am well aware of who she is. I have taken uh, workshops with her and her dance partner, Kevin, as well. Uh, they're amazing, amazing people, highly skilled. And as a woman that runs, effectively runs her own business by being a full-time instructor traveling the world. And, you know, she has taught in on literally every continent, except for one of them, as it tends to be a little chilly down south. But anyway... I don't want to. I don't want to get too much into it. I want to leave it for the show because this conversation was really great. Joe is amazing, and I'm going to link to her her page in the show notes. It's uh, joehoffberg.com. So, without further ado, I give you Joe Hoffberg. Here we go. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to the Small Moves Podcast: Small Steps for Big Progress. Let's prepare to ignite. Hey, Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. Yeah, the, the audience got a little bit of um, a little bit of a background with regards to sort of who you are and what you do and where you came from a bit uh, during the intro to the show that they just listened to. But um, that was just sort of coming from my knowledge and my voice. Like, I'd love them to hear a little bit about yourself straight from the horse's mouth. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving the audience a little bit of background on yourself, they know they, they know that you're a dance instructor. They know that you're a traveling dance instructor that you like to call like not necessarily, not per se homeless, but home free as uh-huh. I've heard, as I've heard you say in the past. Yeah. Um, yeah. G- just um, give the audience a little bit of background and we'll just kind of see where we go from there. All right. Uh, So I grew up in California, just outside of the Bay Area. And when I got a car, I was finally able to drive myself into the big city so that I could go to where like the big kids were dancing. And by the big kids, I mean like the 22 year olds, 23 year olds, 25 year olds. So that was really exciting because I was 16, 17 at the time. So it was, you know, that's like what's cooler than hanging out with like the big kids. Um, And then I went to school down in Southern California at UC Irvine, took a year off to go work in Japan for Universal Studios and came back to finish my degree and took some more time off to go start a dance group and hang out with some buddies in the south of France and then came back to finish my degree, finally graduating in 2007, uh, moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and started my dance partnership, which I just recently celebrated my 10 year. So I have been an international Lindy Hop instructor for the last 10 years, but I have been doing Lindy Hop since uh, 99, 2000. 
Wow. So you started you started full time. Tra- you started any real instructional travel in 2007 or is that when you hit the road full time? Like that was the cord cutting cord cut, sell the house and gone. Like, is that that's a great was question. That sort of 2007. Uh, so 2007, I left the West Coast to move to the East Coast, which is where my dance partner, a man by the name of Kevin St. Laurent, uh, Kevin had a house in Pittsburgh. And he basically said, well, if you don't have anywhere for us to live, this is where we can live and we can train and we can work on stuff. So I was thinking, oh, you know, like how bad could the East Coast be? And uh, this was right before winter came. So it was a, a great uh, learning opportunity. Um, so it, uh, we spent a number of, we spent maybe two years or so doing far less international work, but we were starting to book gigs. We just also needed to train up or I needed to be trained up. And we needed to kind of build a rapport and kind of figure out like, what were we trying to say? Like when we were teaching, what was our point of view so that we had something new to add to the scene instead of just kind of repeating the same old, same old. So, um, we lived there until 2011 and then we moved, uh, back to San Francisco. Kevin had spent some time living actually in San Francisco. So we lived there for a few years and then, uh, or actually a couple of years. And then in April, 2013, we permanently hit the road and have been home free since then. So, but I would say I've been doing international travel for work since, uh, 2008. Um, and it's otherwise been peppered in, but I would say I've been a road warrior for, uh, like at least nine years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, that's crazy. Now it's, it's so funny because I know when you and I were talking before we started recording, I mentioned about how, you know, everybody knows this massive, this massive trend that's been hitting lately where everybody's talking about this whole concept of being a digital nomad, digital nomad, digital nomad. You see it everywhere. You see it in your Google news stream. We see it in all the major publications. It started out with blogs. Then it started trickling into like, say the Huffington, Huffington posts of the world. And now you're seeing articles in Forbes and the New York times. And you're, you're seeing it work its way out to the most prominent sources of media where everybody's talking about how to be this, be this this new sort of creature that's not been really known known before um but the 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 common thread that i've seen and i've been inspired by those things too that's something that my my wife and i are working on you know that's part of that's part of why i've started the small moves podcast and it's part of why she launched her online business back in september as well but the the interesting thing is that it seems like in order to do that, you kind of have to be in the tech space. At least that's what it's that's how all of the sources of information seem. Being an on the ground, literally on the ground, you know, stomping, you know, touching it's like touching, feeling, sweating instructor of dance. Yeah. You're, you're the far you're the farthest thing in the world from a quote unquote digital nomad in the tech space. Like how, like how were you able to sort of put, like how are you able to sort of justify it and to pull it off like that? Because most of it seems to be, to be able to be per se, you know, geographically independent, you kind of have to have, you kind of have to have basically an income source that, will travel with you regardless of where you are. Whereas with you, that's not, that's not necessarily, that's not per se the case because you have to physically go to certain places in order to do, do a of with all intents and purposes to do your job. You've got to go to those places. Like how, how do you kind of view that the, 
sort of the the role of per se the digital nomad versus what you do as we understand it like what's been your sort of thought with that yeah so i to i guess maybe clarify on what i specifically do is that i go from city to city to teach a group of people how to dance that would be my job in its most simplistic terms um, what is also part of the job is going out to the parties in the evening, social dancing with the students, uh, performing and kind of like helping people remember, like there is life outside of work and it should be enjoyed. And here's one of the ways to do it. Um, and it's in a, even in a larger part to be a part of a community. And I am incredibly fortunate that I have been allowed to be in the position that I'm currently in. And why I think that's incredibly important to note is that it's not just me who has gotten me here. It's all of the people along my journey that have helped uh, that have helped me be in this place, be in this role, get to be the person I have become. So um, a lot of the students, like the I would say the general demographic, certainly within uh, like the the men in the scene, uh, and this is very very generalized. A lot of them are in tech or they were CS majors. So there is actually a lot of technology that surrounds the scene, and a lot of people who will take on the jobs to help run the local scenes are often in the field of technology. So that kind of ties that in. So. For some people that we that Kevin and I work for, they are full timers. So they run events full time or they run a dance studio full time. However, for the most part, we are working with amateurs like they are great enthusiasts of what uh, of uh, the community of the Lindy Hop community, but they're not full time. They have a job on the side. So a number of people will get together and in Europe, uh, oftentimes like nonprofits or organizations or associations, depending on what country, uh, get together. There's a board of directors and they have a budget and they vote on who they want to have come in or they talk with the students and see who the students are interested in learning from. And then they will throw festivals and invite instructors so that people will come and take classes which then means the instructors will be at the social dances in the evening and then people get to like rub elbows or just like chat and hang out um, and like participate in the community endeavors. And for the most part, people are doing a lot of this as an act of love because they love the community. They love being a part of this. And there's a couple of us that are full-time, but by, uh, uh, like mostly it's, it's a lot of people that have full-time jobs outside of this. And for the love of the dance and for the love of the community, people donate this much of their time. And I, I like we're hours and hours and hours of their time to make sure that these events that don't pull necessarily a huge profit are able to happen because of how connected people are to their community. So I would say I was at the right place at the right time, knowing the right people with a decent skill set, which allowed me to become the person that I have become. So, sure. so to kind of uh, delve into that, I was in France at the time in 2007, and I was working with some friends, a guy by the name of Dax Hawk, a gal uh, by the name of Elise May, and uh, another guy by the name of uh, Thomas Blachaz. And we were working together and we had put a team uh, together called the Ninjammers. And we were creating a choreography to compete with that year. And uh, uh, Thomas, he ran an association uh, out in France. And there was an event that he was throwing at, in March. It was right before I was going back to school. 
and uh, he invited Kevin out, Kevin St. Laurent. And Kevin was one of the few people that when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, he was doing Lindy Hop full time. So he was one of the people that like wrote the book on how to do this, even though there was not much of an industry at that time because people would perform and there was teaching, but it was more so local. Like it, Lindy Hop had been a, a fad uh, because of the Gap Khaki commercial. And so lots of people wanted to learn how to swing dance. And like the diehard fans stuck around and learned how to Lindy Hop. So it's like, it would be like somebody wanted to learn how to code. And then specifically they learned like JavaScript or C++. Like, so it's, it's something more specific than just the general umbrella of coding. It's a specific language. So, um, so like Kevin had been doing this and he had had a couple of dance partners and at that time in 2007 had been looking for a dance partner. So I was kind of in the right place cause he was looking for a partner and he showed up and I was like, Oh my God, it's another English speaker. Cause in France at the time there were not a lot of English speakers. So I was limited to who I could have uh, larger conversations with. So I was thrilled. Where, and where were, where were you in France? Where were you in France? I was in Montpellier. So that is in the, the South of France and it's a really beautiful city. And there's a lot of really great dancers that have come from that city. Um, and so it was, it just, it really felt like, God, I'm so lucky that I was here because I ran into Kevin Kevin's looking for a partner. And like, we threw some aerials and we hung out and, uh, like it just, it felt like we were friends. Like it was just easy to be around each other. And so when he said, you know, like, what are you doing after you graduate? I was like, I don't know, like getting a job, like you're supposed to, he's like, okay, but you know, like what? what kind of job was like, Oh, I don't know. Like probably going to finance. Like, I don't know, like I'm going to get on the career path, you know, like make six figures in five years. And he was like, well, you You know, like you sound so, you sound so excited about following that path. I just like, (laughs) I, I think I had always just assumed that's what I would be doing. Like it never occurred to me that there was another option. Like the idea of Mm -hmm. getting to be paid to be to, to Lindy hop was it. I mean, it sounded awesome. Like it, I didn't, it it was incredible. I didn't believe it was possible because nobody was really doing it. So it was, it was novel to think about, but it was like, what was I going to tell my parents that I was going to be a swing dancer, like a professional swing dancer? Like, I mean, (laughs) bless their hearts. Like I was getting ready to graduate. I'm sure they would be like, Oh, okay. So follow your bliss. Like there was, it, it didn't occur to me that that would be possible. So it was like, Oh, this is what you do. Like I, I know the party line I've been towing the line, which is you go to school, you get good grades, you get into a great university, you graduate, you get a job, you get a house, you find a partner. There might be babies. Hopefully there's a cute dog along the way. So like, I understood like what the path was supposed to be. And I was like, yeah, sure. You sit in a cubicle. You stay there for 45 years. You hope that your retirement account is there when you decide you end up needing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I knew knew what that looked like and I'm fairly decent at being able to replicate things that I have seen or I can figure out like, okay, well, this is how I've seen it done, but I'm not seeing it done this way. Why don't I try it? Um, But the idea of masterminding a career that I didn't think could exist. Like that was beyond what I would have ever done. Like, I feel like in school, they taught me how to execute. They didn't necessarily teach me how to think, but I would say I've learned how to think since I started teaching dance. So it just, it, it, when, when Kevin invited me to, to come do this, to, to move to Pittsburgh and we could train and, and teach, it just seemed like, well, 
I'm totally going to be a failure because one, it doesn't exist. Like there's no industry, like there's nowhere to go Two, I haven't seen it done, but I guess Kevin's done it. So I guess we're okay. But like, I'm obviously going to have to go get a real job. So since I'm going to fail, I don't have to worry about failing. I just know it's inevitable. So I'll just have a really great time and just like plow. Yeah, I'll have a great time for six. Yeah, I'll have a great time for six months or however long it lasts. I'll exactly. see a few countries and, and then I'll come back and do what I'm supposed to do. Totally. So yeah. there wasn't ever a sense that there was going to be a measure of success because it didn't occur to me that you could be successful for you know all of the reasons I listed before. So in, in that regard, they actually gave me a lot of freedom to feel like, oh, well, sure, yeah, why not? Let's try this. Because remember, I'm always going to fail, so it doesn't matter. Therefore, I can try anything because... Like they're like the outcome has already been set. So all I'm going to do is like impress myself. So normally I would say that's a terrible way of looking at things, but I would say in that instance for me that actually worked out so that I just felt like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like that was the attitude I ended up taking on is that I wasn't looking for perfection. I was looking for what was possible, which is definitely a motto that I would say I've thoroughly embraced. And is something that I hope I'm able to pass on to the people that I work with, not what's perfect because being perfect is so unnecessary and wildly uninteresting, but what's possible because that's interesting. That's fascinating. That allows people to grow. So now why Lindy hop? When you, when you think back, when being in California, especially Northern California, it's not like the, it's not like this person, especially at, at that point when you're talking about like the 90, the 90s into the early 2000s, it's not like this, you know, 80 year old art form that hasn't really been popular in 50 years was the what was the think about. I mean, it, like you said, you were you referred to the, you know, the Gab Khaki commercial I mean, the, until then is like it really wasn't not too many people even really knew what it was. They knew. Lindy hop. Oh yeah. That's that thing that my grandparents did when they were jumping up and down a lot that I see in all the movies. Mm -hmm. But again, 50 years goes by no, no real interest in that particular art form being in San Francisco, being in or near San Francisco, which culturally is a heck of a lot more diverse than a lot of the cities that are around. I'd imagine it's not the only form of dance that you had available to you as a, as a young one. What, why did you what why did you choose Lindy Hop or did you end up with Lindy Hop after trying some others and you just didn't really enjoy the others? You know, actually, I went uh, straight for Lindy Hop. It was the Gap Khaki commercial. I saw people doing aerials off of each other, and I remember thinking, uh, and that's when you are doing an air step or you're flying through the air. And I re uh, and I remember thinking, oh my god, that's totally what I should be doing. I didn't know you could do something like that. And because I was a diver when I was younger, I was a springboard diver, I felt like, oh, well, I already know how to jump off of a board into water. How hard could it be to jump off of a human and land on the ground? It just seemed like <laughs> that connection was very, very quick for me. So I figured out, or I found a place where I could learn how to do aerials and like and swing dance. And it was uh, East Coast Swing. It was Step, Step, Rock, Step. And, uh, and so very, very simplistic. Um, but I was working on doing aerials because, you know, like that was the thing I wanted to do, but I went to it. It was fun. It looked fun. Yeah, it looked fun. And I went to a dance and I saw other kids my age and I felt like, holy cow, there's other people and I don't go to high school with them. And so they don't have a sense of who I am. I just get to show up and like be me. And like, I get to dance with them and everything's cool. Like this 
this is my community. Like they don't know that like we're going to be friends, but we're going to be friends. And I kind of decided then and there, like, these are not the people I go to school with. I'm thrilled. Um, and I get to jump off of half of them. So like even better. So, uh, I kind of started going and I was thinking, God, this is a lot of fun. And then I, like, I took a field trip into San Francisco to like go vintage shopping, even though like I was definitely not really a dress wearer when I was younger. Um, but like we got to go thrift store shopping and like, that was really exciting. And we went to a place called the dog house in San Francisco, which was the Saturday night venue. And like seeing the adults, I was like, Oh my God, like the big kids will talk to me. Like maybe not now, but like I'll get good and they will. And then like, I'm going to be amazing. And everybody, like, I think I was just like, Oh, everybody at school is going to think that I'm super cool. But it was the music that really spoke to me. I was thinking that, Oh God, like this is kind of the stuff that I listened to like when I was younger, cause my parents would play some of it. And I was thinking, God, I've always wanted to move my body to it, but I didn't know how. And then I saw this and I was like, this is it. This is how you move your body to this music. And there's a community of people and there's going to be big kids and I'm going to do aerials off of people. Like for me, it just checked all the boxes that I didn't even know I had. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's funny when, when I, I had, I had the, the, a different experience when I f- was first getting into Lindy Hop myself, like I just got into it. What is it? Probably October, 2007. So right, right around when you were first starting to travel extensively was right around when I first started getting into Lindy myself. And I, I had tried I had done the the other thing where, you know, tried different dance scenes. Like I've always, in, I always enjoyed music. I always enjoyed the thought of dancing, um, but never really had much of an opportunity to do it growing up. But I'm like, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm in my mid to late twenties now. I want to start trying to take this up as a hobby. And I was looking, I was looking frankly for something that would be an alternative to going to the gym. <laughs> Nice. Um, nice. So, I, but I tried. I tried all uh, several different types of dance scenes around the area. Like I'm, in, I'm in Baltimore, so around the Baltimore area. And until I, f- until I stumbled onto a group called Charm City Swing, which I know you're, yeah, you're yeah very yeah. much familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, until, until I stumbled onto that or that group. I just never felt like it was my tribe. Like I just, they, these aren't my people or these pe or I should say the people in this particular scene aren't very nice to the new people. Uh-huh. Like if, if you don't, I, I had, the, I had that experience several times with other styles of dancing. I'll be very nice and not mention that it was, you know, salsa or West coast swing or anything <laughs> like that. I won't, I won't mention what the scenes are or, you know, ballroom or whatever it might be. But um, that was my experience there. And it was pretty much across the board. I'm, and I really hope that I just had really bad experiences because I know there's wonderful people out there that dance all different types of styles. But until I got to Lindy, when I got into these other types of dancing for, you know, a couple weeks here or a couple months there, it was the feeling that you got by being the new guy and not knowing how to lead and not knowing how to dance the style. It was very put offish. It was very, oh, I'd, I'd rather dance with them because they know what they're doing. And that was, that was very, deme- like, that was a very bad experience for me early on. I was like, 
I really don't like these people. How are you going to, how are you going to grow this? And my thought, my thought went right to business. It was really funny because being somebody that's started several, several small companies, that's just sort of how my brain works. I'm like, well, how are you going to grow this scene if you keep kicking the new people in the teeth? Like, how is that going to help you? (laughs) Uh, But when, when I stumbled on a charm city swing and specifically Lindy, specifically Lindy, it was amazing the warmth and welcoming feeling that I that I got on my very first day. Like it was an incredible experience. Um and I've and I've noticed that at every level. Like at every level of Lindy Hop, I've noticed I've had that experience because when I first started, I danced with everybody in the room because I didn't know who the hell was who. <laughs> yeah. And then and then once I learned who the hell was who, I would periodically get intimidated by the more advanced dancers, or I'd come to the events where they would bring in instructors like you and Kevin. And so, sometimes I would ask you guys to dance, sometimes not. But I every time I would, it would be very, very much welcoming. And it just it, it worked its way all the way up the chain to the point where I was going to some of these bigger events around the US. And there were some of the greatest dancers in the world that were here as either instructors or just guests to dance. And shocking, you walk up to this total stranger that happens to be someone say at your at your instructional level, or people that have been dancing even long, even longer. And they're like, would you like to dance? Sure. And you get a dance with somebody that is otherworldly when it comes to talent compared to yourself. And that's just not that just wasn't my experience with other stuff. So I just, I kind of, I found my tribe. It, it, it sounds like, you, like it sounds very similar to your, my, once I found it, I had yeah. a very similar experience to you. Yeah. Uh, but, but it took me a little bit of digging to get there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting to hear about other people's experiences when they've gotten to try out other dance forms. I felt like uh, when I started doing other dance forms, which is when I came back from working in Japan, like I started taking ballet, I was really nervous and uncomfortable with a lot of different pieces. One, I was learning how to use my body in a new way. And there's definitely an air around like the other ballet dancers that you have to like be the best or you have to be good. And like, we're just all a bunch of beginners, uh, in the room. And even though I would say like, I was a decent dancer, I had no ballet training. And if you haven't done ballet, you're not going to be good at ballet. There's of course exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, if you haven't done ballet, you're not good at it until you've trained it. And, but because I had such a great uh, community behind me, I felt like, you know what, actually it's okay. Like, it doesn't matter if like people are a little bit um, snotty. And I don't think anybody actually was, they just all came off that way. Cause they were all just as nervous as I was, but I felt like I had a greater sense of resilience because I had a community behind me where I felt like, you know what, I'm accepted he- here in my community. So if I'm not over in this other place, you know what, that's no problem. Like I'm not here to impress them. I'm here just to learn for myself, which actually became really freeing when I started working on other dances, because I wasn't worried about that aspect or that I needed to impress people. It was like, Oh no, I'm clearly here just for me and my education. It doesn't matter how these other people think about me because they're not who I'm spending my time with. It's my Lindy hop friends that those are the ones I care about. And those are the ones that I'm investing, uh, time and energy into. So I felt like that actually changed how I thought about other dance forms was because of my relationship to my tribe. So it's, uh, I would be interested to know if you were to take up other dance forms, how you'd feel about it now that you feel connected already to a community. Yeah, now that I fa- now that I sort of found my home, how comfortable would I be sort of visiting visiting another town? I guess. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. It, it's funny you brought you brought up about once you sort of found found your home, you were more comfortable sort of doing doing your thing in these other scenes mm. for yourself. Yeah. Um. You you mentioned earlier that you were a springboard diver. Yeah. Uh, that's that's not the that's not the only sort of solo solo sport that you were doing when you were younger, was it? Uh, no, it was not. I was also an FA fencer. So there are three types of swords that people fight with. It would be, well, uh, like in the sport, it would be a foil, which is when the, the body is targeted. Uh, well, the, the main part of your body. So like, uh, your chest and your stomach and, uh, you wear something called a lame. So it's like a shiny piece of material. So if you can kind of picture that there's epe, which is what I fought with, which is the sword's a little bit bigger and the full body is a target. And then there's saber, which is often the sword that most people think about, uh, when you like picture a swashbuckler and, um, you are able to slash in order to get points. And that is, I think one of the scariest forms of fighting that I have seen. <laughs> you ever get to see some saber battles. Oh my gosh, those, ooh, those swords humans are amazing to watch. And it's terrifying. Like I remember seeing competitions when I was younger and I was like, I will never even pretend to do that. So that was one of the ones I didn't try. Cause I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to have anybody coming at me with a sword who's bigger than I am that can like slice through me to get a point. Like, no, they can stab me, but not slice through me. So I uh, was able to draw my boundaries pretty quickly with that one. <laughs> That's great. It's funny, but the what you mentioned about uh, the smallest one being a foil. Me, me as a absolute amateur when it comes to knowing anything about that particular sport, the foil is the only one that I ever knew existed. Mm. Like, because that's whether it be in movies or TV shows or whatever. Like, that's the one that that's referred to in pop culture. Yeah. Like when, when, when it comes to fencing is like, Oh, where is like, it's not a sword. It's a foil. It's like, it's a foil. It's a foil. It's a foil. Like that's the term that keeps sort of getting drilled in. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an epi. Like what, what made you sort of go to that versus what I would imagine would be the more common or more commonly used, I should say, version of that sport. Um, I, I think my brother was fighting. Uh, so we, uh, my brother, my younger brother and I started up fencing or like more specifically, he started fencing and because uh, like bless my mom's heart, she would drive, she would drive both of us. So I had the choice of doing homework or fencing and I was like, well, I'm going to be fencing. So, um, <laughs> and not because that mean, meant I didn't have to do my homework. I could just do it later, which felt like that was the smart thing to do at the time. Sure. So that was a win. Yeah. So, um, we both did foil at the beginning, but then we would end up having to be sparring partners. And I just felt like, I don't want to like fight my brother with a sword. Like, either like I'm going to win because I'm the bigger one or I'm going to lose and I, because I'm the bigger one, like that's not going to be okay. So like I had a little bit too much pride. So I wouldn't, so I just felt like, okay, so what's the next option? And they were like, how about Epe? And like, I was barely strong enough to like hold the sword and like do all of the, the sword work that you need. Like there's a lot of cross training and like, I just wasn't used to holding something that is like that long. So the physics of it, like my, my wrists got really tired. So there was a lot of cross training so I could regularly hold the sword and like train for an hour and a half with this piece of metal. Um, so, uh, mostly I ended up picking up that one so that I didn't have to, to fight my brother. Um, but I always had to, to fight up. So in some ways I think I didn't necessarily pick like the best sport to, to play because of, uh, when my birthday is, I was near a cutoff. And so because of that, I always had to fight people who were like a year older than I was or two years. And so like, and most of the girls had hit, uh, 
or actually, uh, yeah, most of the girls had hit a growth spurt at that time. So I was always fighting people like, Oh, six to eight inches taller than me. It just felt like, God, why am I always the runt here? So, um, in some ways that was a little bit short lived. I did that for a couple of years and went to the the junior Olympics. So like, I, like I did, I did a decent run, but otherwise I, it wasn't really quite for me. And then I entered high school and like got interested in boys and, and then I found swing dancing. So then that kind of like straightened everything up. So <laughs> I find it hilarious how humble you are talking about this stuff. It's like, yeah, it was like, it's like, it, it was like, it was hard. I didn't really enjoy it. I couldn't really do it. But you know, I was in the junior Olympics. But you know, it was only a couple of years, and then I found boys. I'm like, seriously? I mean, like, it's like, how, start start with the junior Olympics. Like, how, how do you? It's like, how do you qualify for a junior Olympics on something like that? So like, did you? Like, tell me, tell me a little bit about that experience. You're the, you're the first junior Olympian I've ever met. Tell, uh, tell, um, tell me a little bit about that experience. So I like some of this is a little bit hazy just because they're like, um, my mother Blows did a, head. Oh, no. Um, my mother did a, a really great job at driving us to competitions. So like my brother and I both, uh, were, were divers. And so like on weekends we would drive all over like Northern California to go to these various competitions. And like, we made it up to state, uh, as divers. And we were in like, you know, the nine-year-old group, the 10-year-old group, the 11-year-old group, or however old, uh, the two of us were at that time. And, uh, with fencing, like we just kind of kept going to competitions and assuming that you were still, uh, like placing, uh, and doing well and that your, uh, like your team was going, then you could qualify. So I don't necessarily remember if I was good enough to actually like qualify to get in, but certainly the school that I was with was. And so we had a number of members, uh, go there. And I don't really remember thinking it was a a huge deal. It was just kind of like, it's another competition. And like all of the girls are really big and they're really scary. And because also when you're bigger, you're stronger. And when you're stronger, you can carry, you can hold a, a longer sword. So like, I don't remember the length of the sword that I was fighting with, but a lot of the the people that I was partnered with, had much longer swords. So like lunge for lunge, I could, they could hit me where I couldn't hit them at the same time. So like, it was a clear disadvantage. So, but going back to it, um, I and think how, it would be how, how, ta- how tall were, how tall, how tall were you then oh, versus certain I mean, like I was maybe like, I was maybe almost five feet tall at that point, or maybe I was just five feet tall. And like the I remember one of the gals I fought was six feet tall and I was just like, this is wildly oh, unfair. And like, she just like, she came from a very tall family and she was two years older than I was. Um, so it was just like, Oh God, okay, well this is going to be rough. I think she drew blood in that particular match, but otherwise, um, <laughs> it was a, it was co-ed. So like I fought, uh, guys and gals and, okay. uh, I just, I remember thinking like, okay, I'm doing this cause I don't really want to do homework and I'm like slightly decent and there's not a lot of people in my age group. So like, at least there's an advantage there and like, there's a good story, but I don't ever really remember being super passionate about it. Like I kind of remember seeing like Conan the barbarian and seeing him like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like wielding this big sword. And there, and we had one of those at the, um, at the, at the, at the fencing, uh, place. And I remember thinking, I'm going to be able to pick that up. And, uh, George, our coach, George was like, yeah, sure. Try to pick that up. And I remember at the time I couldn't, (laughs) like, I couldn't even lift the sword. So I was like, Oh, just for the sake of me being able to like lift this. And I, I think by the time I was probably strong enough to lift it, I was like, Oh, it doesn't matter anymore. Like I'm going to like go do this other stuff. I've got homework. And like, 
I've got homework to do and like boys to chase. So I think, uh, uh, my priorities slightly changed by the time I got big enough to like actually do some decent work in my fencing career. Isn't it funny? Like the, that, that comment about that particular sword, but also what you sort of mentioned about the saber, the, uh, the saber level competitions from before. Isn't it amazing how we're kind of almost dev- devolving physically as a species when you compare to like go, go back several hundreds of years, the people, the warriors that they had in those eras, like that. So that sword that you were looking at that you could barely look at, let alone pick up yeah. like this was their that was their spare that they had just sort of strapped to the bottom half of their leg compared to their actual real weapons and the 200 pounds of armor they were wearing like isn't it ama- yeah. isn't it amazing when you think about it like the we talk about we see stuff in art like archery is another great example where you know you'll see you'll see these guys that are met like world class bow hunters like you see these guys that are just world class bow hunters the best of the best of the best are able to hit their stationary targets or slowly moving targets at maybe 40 yards away, 50 yards away. Yeah. Meanwhile, go back a few more years. You've got like the Mongols, which could at full stride on horseback with no saddle, shoot birds out of the air with their, with their bows. And like, isn't it amazing when we sort of take away the necessity for these things, how so quickly yeah. we lose the ability. I think it's because it's a- they didn't spend as much time on Facebook. I am positive that they were trying <laughs> to get to the end of the internet. So they're like, well, what else do we have to do except learn how to shoot things out of the air? <laughs> Pull oh <my> gosh. <laughs> the things that we spend our time doing. So true. So true. Um, so you, so you are, you're currently in, you know, where, where are you, where am I talking to you now? I am currently in Athens, Greece, and I just came from Mallorca and next week I will be in Budapest. So I have a, a fairly solid travel schedule, uh, this tour. That sounds so much fun. Now, oh, when you, when you say tour, what do you, what do you mean by tour? Do you do you do you generally try to like just sort of like clump all of your traveling together in kind kind of like a tour for a stand up comedian or whatever, where it's like okay for these two months of the these two months every every six months I try to bulk all my traveling together and then I try and stay home or do you kind of travel a hundred percent of the time? Well, it's, I mean, in some ways that begs the question is where is home? Uh, but I guess before I get there, um, I often try to spend, uh, chunks of time on a continent knowing that then I won't have to deal with jet lag, which I now feel jet lag in my thirties very differently than I did in my twenties. Um, <laughs> and I remember telling myself just as a side note, I remember telling myself hearing like the old guys, like, you know, people who were older than me, anybody who was older than me was an old guy. Um, like talk, hearing the old guys talk about this, like, Oh, you know, it's going to happen to you too. It's old age. And I, and I remember thinking, I'm never going to let that happen to me. And now it's just like, Oh, you don't have a choice. That was the part that you missed. And I, I'm not sure it's that they didn't say it. I just clearly didn't hear it. Um, so, yeah. uh, because of jet lag, I now see what I can do about staying over in like one on like on a continent. So, um, I came over to Europe at the end of September and then I will go back to, 
uh, the Americas in like at the beginning of December, I've got two weeks of filming down in Mexico with, uh, with mining Kevin's like team down in Mexico for our online, uh, school called ilindy.com. So we'll do some more filming for that school. And then I'll, uh, head back up to Seattle to kick around with my parents for a little bit. And then, uh, there will be Christmas and then I'll head out to Asheville, North Carolina for one of the largest Lindy hop events in North America called Lindy focus. So, um, when I can, I'll see if I can do a minimum of two weeks and then probably no more than about 10 weeks. And then I, I try to come back to an, or go back to another country. So, um, typically I will say like, uh, October, November, and part of December is often Europe. Uh, and then I'm kind of stateside on and off until maybe March, like middle of March, end of March, April, May, June. So April, May, June, I'm also in Europe. So I, I try to spend about six months in, in Europe and then six months in the Americas or like Asia. So Asia is on rotation uh, a couple times a year, I would say. Got it. Is there any particular part of Asia that you... I'm, I don't want to put you in a spot in saying that you like more than the others, but is, is there a particular part that you've trained in and or just visited for the purposes of vacation that seems just tends to sort of draw your eye that you like to go to maybe more, more often than maybe business would require? Oh, let's see. Well, I mean, so I, this whole vacation thing is a very novel idea because I don't work typical hours. So it's like, it's not like I'm at an office job from like eight to five. And then I need to like ask for my two weeks off or schedule my two weeks off. Or if I was European schedule my five weeks off hashtag go <laughs> Europe. Um, but, uh, so it's kind of like I'll schedule downtime in between trips. So I, a couple years ago, I, took a, I, I did a, a month long teacher training course in yoga out in Bali because why not? So I would say Bali is probably one of the places in Asia that I would say, like, I'm going to call that Asia that I really enjoyed going to. And that I would be happy to, to go back. I've been there twice now and I really enjoyed being there. I would say like, if you're really looking for a great cultural, uh, like, cultural stories to write home about, uh, going to China is definitely one of those places. Uh, I would say like more than if you go to London, like I, I guess now at this point going to Western Europe, I feel like, okay, there's not really a cultural experience. There are like interesting bits and pieces and like, uh, like just pieces about like being in Germany versus France that you're like, Oh, these cliches that I've heard about, uh, they kind of make sense a little bit. Um, but otherwise like going to Asia, that's where I feel like wow, this is a different world. This feels very different than the world I grew up in. So I would say like from a travel perspective, I think going to like China is incredibly interesting because it's so very different, even though because technology and the internet and globalization, uh, there are, there are far more similarities now than there would have been 10 years ago, um, or obviously 50 years ago. But I would say like, if you're looking for a good cultural experience, I would say like head to like the outskirts of Beijing. But if you're looking for a really great vacation experience, uh, depending on what you're looking for, for me, Bali has been a great place to go visit. Got it. Yeah, it's it's funny you brought, you brought that up. That That's the, the thought of the dramatic difference in the sort of culture that you see some from more Western civilizations versus some of the others. Yeah. Um, it's 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 palatable. It's truly palatable if you're willing to actually 
make those trips because that that's something that always got me when you talk to people that are in college and they get to if they're well to do enough to do the travel abroad sort of arrangement that you know maybe ha- half the people that I know that went to college that I know have in my world right now um roughly half of them did the travel abroad thing um when when presented the opportunity uh but anytime I've I I myself did not do that. When I've talked to people that have had that experience, you ask where they went. And it's like, where did you go? I spent I spent a semester in London. I spent a semester in Paris, and I'm like, yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> not saying there's anything. Not it was like as, as Jerry Seinfeld said, not that there's anything wrong with that, <laughs> but when I I don't see you real really learning anything life impactful in a trip like that like i the now there's a now there's a different way to do it like for example back in 2001 this august of 2001 mm-hmm. i went on a trip to france uh-huh. by myself for three weeks Ooh. that's a completely different story i wasn't going for school i had no friends i had no people that accompanied me i went to france alone for three weeks that was a culture shock because once you got out of Paris, where 90% of the population speaks fluent English and, frankly, better English than people back home, um, once you got out into the to the French countryside, that was not so much the case. And it was it was a legitimate culture. It was a legitimate culture shock. And it was a great experience. But for for people that are in college, especially young people that are in college that have the opportunity to expose themselves to different cultures. I'm sorry, London's just not going to do it. I like I, I for listeners that are in London, I love you to death. But if you're going from if you're moving from the outskirts of Washington D.C. or <laughs> New York or Chicago, where most of these major colleges are in the U.S., if you're going from an American city to London for four four five months and then coming back, you're not learning anything. It's especially now you you get you go. You go to the subway here, you look around, 90% of the population is staring down at their cell phone. You go to the Paris, <laughs> you go to the tube in Paris, or you go to the, you know, the same in London, yeah. the underground in London, you're looking around and 90% of the population is staring down on their cell phones, the same cell phones that you're looking at back home. Like there's no difference. Odds are they're looking at the same apps. There's no difference. There, the, There's an accent. That's it. There's, that's the only thing that you notice that's different. Whereas when yeah. you go to... Yeah, when you go to Asia, when you go to certain parts of South and Central America, when you go to Africa, like like the certain countries in Africa, it's a different world. You might as well be on a different planet. You might as well have taken the space shuttle, and that's amazing. Like that, that's such an amazing experience for people because it it completely changes your perspective, or it can. If you go into if you go into it with the mindset of knowing that you're going to see something that's completely different from what you're used to and it completely works yeah. where you are. It might not work back home. Like that type of society, that type of structure might not work back home. Yeah. But if you understand that these things can work in different environments and these these sorts of family structures, these sorts of societal you know, structures, these types of government, these things work where they are. Um, and just being able to see that is just, so, we, we talk, my wife and I talk about, you know, we've got, we've got two kids. We have a two and a half year old and a nearly six month old. And, you know, we, 
we talk about we talk about their education and we're like do we want to go the the traditional route of going to the the close private school the 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 close public school that's right down the block with all the other kids right around here and then go to the middle school that's a little further away that's right around here and or do we want to just sort of pack it up and go and learn lose like let them learn by learning the world i mean that that's something that we constantly struggle with that would be my about trying to figure but out i can't imagine what it would also be like to travel with children i find it uh challenging enough to travel uh like by myself let alone if i have like my boyfriend uh with me uh so uh yeah i can't imagine exactly what that's like to travel with two children but uh i think that is something that American education is missing is, uh, teaching our kids really how to think and how to just be useful human beings. Like, I don't feel like I actually learned how to be a even semi useful human being till I was like 28 or 29, because when I was in school, like things were just, were taken care of. Like, I like if something didn't work in the apartment, you would call the super and the super would come over and fix it. So I didn't have to learn how to like fix toilets or like patch drywall or like do electrical or tile the floor. Like I didn't have to do any of that. If there was a problem with the car, like I didn't have to fix it because I could call somebody to fix it. And these are all amazing luxuries, but you really get to test your metal as a human when you are traveling and you're a guest in somebody's house, or if you're on the side of the road in a country where your cell phone doesn't work and you're like, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this right now because that's my only option or like balancing a checkbook or learning how to pay taxes or like learning how to run a small business. Like I think until you really just have to do something on your own and people are like, oh, well, I can't help you. Or you never thought to ask anybody. It's like, no, like, I guess I just assumed I would do it myself. Like, I, I think that's something that we are missing in American education and talking with a lot of the Europeans, their system is not grossly different than ours, but I feel like just they have more access to the world or they're still required to do a lot more for themselves where I feel like we are teaching our students how to pass tests, but I don't feel like the quality of the education. And, but like that being said, maybe at like private schools with piles of money, it's very different. But I think that there's just a level of, of general learning that we're missing the mark. America does have some of the best education in the world, but it also has a lot of the worst education. And it feels like, uh, like we could do better. America could do a lot of things better. Education is one of them. Yeah. Education is absolutely one of them. It's funny. Like the, it, it's, it's almost sort of like what, well, what is the baseline where I, I agree where you, if you look around, the, if you look around the world, like specific, specifically the, the model that my wife and my wife was a classroom teacher for the longest time. Now she owns a private, private, private education business. So I, I've been educated about the educational system far more than maybe the average guy out there, just because my wife has been beating it into my head for seven years. But the 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 system the the system that we're most familiar and that we admire the most that we've come across so so far is a system that they have in Denmark. It's just an incredible educational system that they have over there. But if you look at say Europe across the board or Africa across the board or Asia across the board, I would say that as it would compare to the US, I would say geographically the baseline of education in the US just sort of the mean of what everybody learns and everybody knows across the span of population and demographic i'd say is probably a little higher than is higher than average of most other areas of the world mm-hmm. but the exceptional 
when you get into the exceptional that explodes in other areas of the world just because just because of the way that their societies are structured it's like the the school the school is in beijing it's not 5000 miles to the west like that's not where so if you look at the average edu- like the average educational level of you know sort of the chinese peasant that's working the field 5000 miles from the ocean versus you know, versus the ones that are in the cities going to the educational institutions that they have there, it's night and day. But the the high end is so much higher than what you can find here, at least until you get to the college level. When you get to the college, that's the interesting phenomenon too about when you when you're looking at international education. I'm sure you've probably seen this too, where when you look at the educational levels starting at the earliest ages, working your way through. The late teens, or call it the U.S. equivalent of high school, in the rest in the rest of the world, I think the re- I think a lot of areas of the rest of the world have a significant jump on us. But then they send all of their graduates to the universities in the U.S. The U.S. and the U.S. and London and Paris. It's so funny how that happens. It's like once you get to the higher education levels, they want they want you know they want Harvard, Princeton, Caltech, like they want to come to the U.S. for the college level. But before that, they're like, no, we're we're fine. We're fine right here where we are. Yeah, I think if you look at yeah. testing scores, uh, which are online, so somebody could actually check these facts. I, there's a number of places that the United States is not doing terribly well. And I think math and science is uh, some of those places. So I think and uh, generally what we are offering in America or what our test scores are saying is that we could be doing better or we could be teaching differently in order to get different results. Uh, is for me what some of the data says. So, um, but I, I do agree. Like there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people who want to come to get higher education, uh, in the United States or London or in Paris. There's a number of, of key hubs. Um, I, every now and again, though, this for me also begs the question of like, who is deciding on what's important to teach people and is it actually useful to help people get ahead. And I feel like that also then goes to purpose. Like, what's your purpose? Like, what are you living yeah, for? Define getting ahead. Yeah. Exactly. But also like, why, why do you get up in the morning when you're older? And are you living a life that's the rat race that you were told that you're supposed to do? Or are you living a life with uh, like, in hopes that you are in service of others? Are you uh, living a life that you have to finance because you have children and you want to make sure they have a life better than yours? And there's not a correct answer to this, but I feel like if we maybe did a little bit better for the next generation to try to figure out like, well, what do you actually want to do? Like, what is it that you want to get up day in and day out that you find interesting? Because it's every day of your life, it's yours. Time is only spent. You can't get more time. Money can be made. Money is made and spent, but time is only ever spent. But I feel like it's not really brought to the attention of here, why don't we just train you for the thing that you want to do? Like we can teach you all of these skills, but a lot of them you're not going to use. And when you come up upon something that you're really interested in, now you'll understand why you want to learn all of this. Like there was lots of stuff that I remember learning in school that I didn't really pay attention to. Like I still did the homework so I could get the A, but it didn't really concern me. But since running my own business, a lot of that stuff is like, a lot of mathematics. I'm like, Oh, this is really interesting. I need to know how to do this so I can better run my books so I can figure out what my taxes are. How is it that the stock market works? How is it that I would pay taxes on some of this? What are these losses and gains? How do I pay taxes in Germany? Why would I need to know that? Okay. Now I do need to know that. 
Um, how do I calculate this, that, or the other? Like there's so many little things that I remember learning that felt like I'm never going to use this. But once it was clear, I'm running my own business and here's what you need to do as a business owner. I was like, wow. Okay. All of that becomes so much more interesting and so much more applicable. Now I understand why it's important to pay attention. So all of those lessons that felt like they took so much more time to really like learn and understand. Now they're so much quicker to absorb. Uh, and because there's an incentive, like I give a shit. And I feel like that's a lot of what's not happening in education. There's just these things that we're required to do, but there's no clear sense about why are we doing this? And it needs to be more because you're going to be smarter as a, like as a big kid or that like, well, that's good for you. Like that's a terrible reason as a kid is to be told it's good for you to read this stuff versus it's challenge. Like this is challenging stuff to read. It's not supposed to be easy. You're learning how to learn. You want to be able to teach yourself anything. And sometimes learning is tough. And like, as, as a current instructor, that's definitely something that comes up where it feels like I want you to have a good time. And in large part, a number of people that are coming to learn how to dance are here to have a good time. But I feel like you could also be having a great time if you learned more. And some of that learning is not super pleasant and it's not super easy and it's not super fun. But when you acquire these skills, it opens so many other doors. And the, the thing that you think that you see that I have and you don't, it's through this process. It's not just like some magic that's happening. It's actually learning how to teach yourself how to do these things. I can show it to you, but if you don't actually learn it, if you don't practice it, if you don't put in the time and the passion behind it, what good is it going to do you? So, I mean, I think there are life lessons on how to be a forever student, how to be a permanent student, because it's your life that you have a choice to constantly learn through or to just become complacent. And like, I think just like anything, getting to work with people who are, avid learners and who are interested in what's going on around them or with them. Like those are the people that really bring value to each other's lives. And I certainly strive to be that. And I hope other people strive to be that. And I find a lot of that happens with the education people get when they're younger is about how do they learn? How do they interact with education? How do they interact with authority? Um, how do they have a sense of purpose about what they're giving back or what they're even looking for in their life? I feel like so much of this comes back to like what how people live their life when they're younger and the system that they're brought up in, uh, which is actually really interesting in the Lindy Hop world because Lindy Hop is, is an American art form, but the Americans, I would say, are not actually on top of the game in the Lindy Hop world anymore. I would say it's the French and the Swedish. Those are the ones that are really leading the way or have been. Wow. So we'll, we'll certainly see because the, the tide can always turn, but it's, it's interesting because you've said, you've mentioned Paris a number of times and there's a lot of great dancers in France. Like they have the passion, they have the drive, uh, and like arts are supported in France where the arts are not as supported in America. Uh, as those are often, uh, like arts funding is often the first thing that gets cut if, uh, there's budget cuts in school. So I don't know if, uh, if your wife would agree with me, that was certainly my experience when I've done some research. No, that was absolutely her experience. Absolutely. So, yeah, I find that really interesting um, that it's, to, yeah. To that, mm -hmm. like you, you, met, you mentioned I, how the tide has sort of turned away from it being sort of led by the U.S. over towards like France and Sweden are really kind of the ones that are leading the Lindy Hop world these days because they have a passion for it. I wonder, I mean, I wonder is that because, and I'm going somewhere with this, but I wonder is that because it's a relatively new art form 
for those countries? Like, is it like, are they leading it? Because it's kind of like the scrappy newcomer, you know, it's like, it's like, this is something that's new to them. Like, like I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, you know, Liddy Hop is 80 years old here. It's like, it's something where, yeah, it'll, it'll flare back to popularity here and there and in different regions of the country. And then it'll spread and go to other areas of the country and then it'll die off. And then you'll see a TV commercial that looks cool and it'll get popular again. And then, yeah. Maybe there'll be, you know, a, ba- a band that pops up in a movie with a creepy guy in a green mask and that'll get that'll start to draw. A cra- that'll start to draw a crowd. And then eventually that dies off because they find that that generation, they find <laughs> they find their spouse in that particular dance scene. And then they're like, win, <laughs> done. And then they're out, yeah. you know, and with these other countries, like the, the, the art form is new. So I wonder if that's where the passion comes from. That newness is sort of where the passion for it comes from. Like, I mean, would you, what do you think? Do you think that that take is part of it or do you think there's more to it? You know, I think, um, I think there's more to it. So for a little bit of background, uh, possibly more for the listeners, um, I would say the Swedes were instrumental in bringing Lindy hop back. So a number of, or a couple of, Swedish people were watching old dance videos and they came across, uh, some Lindy hop clips and they realized like, okay, well, these are, you know, Americans, we might be able to find them in America. And so they came over to America. They were in New York and they got a phone book and they went through the phone book and they tried to find these people. And one of the guys was by the name of Al Mins. And so he was a dancer, uh, from back in the day. And, uh, so some Swedes came and they wanted to like meet him and learn from him. And, uh, so the Swedes have actually been doing Lindy hop for quite some time, but they have been doing it as a performative dance, not as a social dance. And, and why that's really interesting is because people were not joining for the social scene. They were joining because they had an opportunity to get more exercise. They were learning how to perform. They could be a part of a troupe. And so it was like, there was friendship through that, but it wasn't, quite the same now where it's like you go out to social dance or like you travel to get to like hang with your friends that particular way where I would say the community is, is much, much larger now. So the Swedes at this point, um, and this is totally generalizing, but they are the, the Swedish government is able to support the, the dance form kind of through sports. So they have another dance form called boogie woogie, and it's looked at as a sport. And when you join clubs, if your clubs are doing well and your dancers are traveling and are placing at lots of competitions and winning points, uh, the clubs do well. And there, uh, there are stipends available to help support like the sports team. So for Sweden, there is a larger background in like, like as some of the dancing being a sport, but also a lot of the kids learn, uh, dancing when they're in, I think it's like fifth grade or sixth grade. Like it's part of their, their physical education curriculum is to learn how to dance where like, I remember in seventh grade, we had line dancing for the girls and there was wrestling for the boys. Um, but it wasn't like, or there was cotillion. So we kind of learned how to dance, but it wasn't one of those things that you just did every single day for a number of months. So like it's built into their education system that people learn how to dance. And even if they don't stick with it, they at least can like find the beat and there's a way to do it. So Sweden has more financial support in the arts. Um, and I feel like 
with the Americans, we've done it as a social dance. Like it's, there's not as much of an industry, I would say, um, for people getting paid to perform this. There are people that perform, but the amount of people who exclusively perform Lindy Hop and make a full-time living is a far lower number than in Sweden, where there are, uh, there are some dance troops that are paid to, to perform and they're able to, to travel without having to teach exclusively. So I would say from where I am, um, and the, the part of the industry that I'm within that most people are competitors and because they're, they're placing, they become instructors, which there's a, that's a a big topic about how one makes that leap, but, um, they become instructors and like you make a living as an instructor, not as a performer. So, um, but with the French, a part of me just feels like it's that, uh, it's, it's the attitude and, uh, that sigh was more, so I'm at a loss for words, but I just feel like the French are really connected um, to the arts and they have like a passion for art and they like live and breathe art in a way that is completely and culturally acceptable where for Americans, it's kind of like, Oh, I'm so sorry that your child's an artist. Like, you know, I've got aunt, like, and you help them with school as well. Like it's, it's something that the wealthy consume, but it's not something that they necessarily wish for their children. Like they hope that they do it, but they also hope that they get a real job. So it's not that they're a full-time dancer. Like maybe if they get into the world of choreography or maybe if they're in opera because opera has a different status, but like I very rarely hear the conversation of like, Oh, I really hope my daughter grows up to be a ballerina or my son grows up to be a ballerina and that my, uh, you know, other children grow up to be painters. Like you typically are like, we would like you to get real jobs. And if you happen to be really good at this, wonderful, but like, it's, it's interesting, uh, how it's consumed as a commodity. Again, another type of conversation, but, um, the French are also really creative and they have a really great work ethic. And I would say in Europe in general, I find that people are, and again, generalizing, um, the studentship in Europe is much higher where in America, there is a sense of, oh no, I haven't even taken any lessons. I've just learned through social dancing, which when the dance was originally done, let's say at the Savoy, which is a famous ballroom, um, that hopefully some of the listeners have heard of. If not, you should definitely go look that up. The Savoy ballroom. Um, a lot of people would go there and they would learn how to dance because they didn't have traditional dance classes to teach Lindy hop the way that we do today. But it was like, it's what everybody was doing at the time. Like that's what you did in the evenings. Like you would go like hang out at bars, but you would go dance. You'd listen to live music. You'd listen to uh, like Chick Webb and Duke Ellington. Uh, and like you would go dance with your friends cause that's kind of what you did. And there was lots of different styles, but now if you go out social dancing, you just learn how to dance just from watching. It's totally possible, but not as many people practice the skill of just watching and learning. Um, certainly not in the Lindy hop world. I would say that's much more prevalent in the hip hop world. Um, or in Korea, like the Koreans are really great at doing that. Um, but the American attitude towards it is, oh no, like I'm like, I have a sense that the American attitude is, oh no, I'm good enough. Like, oh yeah, no, I can just wing this. Like, you know, like it's, this is, this is totally fine. Like I can, I can do it. Fake it till you make it, which I will say that attitude. Fake it till you make it. I was about to say the same thing. It's a really great attitude in some regards because sometimes you just need to have the fearless sense of I'm just going to do this until I've made it because maybe nobody knows what they're doing either. So like, why shouldn't I like in some ways, like that's a really brilliant way to move yourself forward. 
Um, but sure. one of the limitations is if you don't bother to get the training when there is training available at some point, it's like, okay, well, you're trying to fake it until you make it, which we all see, but like, you still will need these skills because this is where the bar is, but you are acting like you don't want to look at where the bar is because if you could just ignore it, maybe it won't apply to you. Where the Europeans, on the other hand, I just have a general sense. And again, it's because of the, the people who I interact with, which are students, um, that there's just a sense of, no, there's always something more to learn and how nice it is to get to work with somebody who knows more than you, because it means that there's always a way to grow and there's somebody to help you. Like, it seems like it's maybe not a reference, uh, like they don't revere us, but there's a sense of no, like, thank you for spending this much time delving into this subject so that I have the opportunity to learn. Like, it just seems like it's a gift to get to learn. Whereas in the States, it feels like, oh no, like do it on your own. Like that's how you make it. You pull yourself up by the bootstraps and it's like, well, you can do that. Yeah. Like it's like the, the, the learn learning is an inconvenience. It's something that's stopping you from doing something else. Yeah. Now that's a good point. And well, that's, um, we're, we're kind of circling for, to what I think is a, a great place to wrap up. But what, one of the things that I wanted to ask, uh, for the people that are listening, I mean, you've, you from a fairly early age, you were able to f sort of figure out a way to not necessarily follow that original path, but to sort of do what it is that you love to do, which is like you said, you 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 come from the U.S., which does have that culture of where dancing is just more of a social thing. You've been able to turn it into your profession. Do you ever get bored of it? <laughs> like that's that's something that's something I have to admit. Like that 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 had been my experience with two separate. On two separate occasions in my life where I tried to turn something that I loved doing into a business that would generate income doing that thing that I love doing. And it was a terrible experience for me in a fairly short period of time, because once I started tying money to that hobby, I immediately started to disdain it. Like what, what how, have you gone through cycles of that at, at any point in your, in your career? And like, what's, what are your thoughts for people that want to maybe do the thing that they want, but to make sure, like we all have multiple, like there, all of us have a lot of different things that we're interested in. How, how do you go about sort of picking, how do you think you would go about picking the one of those to actually go with that might not necessarily have you end up hating dancing or hating, hating, hating nonprofit work or, you know, whatever it is, whatever that thing is that you're passionate about, that you love doing, that you want to try and turn into what, what has become in your case, what it's become your career. Like what, how do, how does one, how would you say that people could go about making that choice so that maybe they're not picking the wrong one or should they, should you just say, or should you just say, screw it and try the first one? And if you screw up, dump it and try the second one. I, and then the third, like, I, what's your I thought? I think that's a, a great way to go about it. Um, so, so you asked a number of really great questions. Um, so the, I would say just like everything, it, my, my dance career and my interest in dancing and teaching has also had a cycle. I think this is just like any kind of relationship. There's times when you are really passionate about this said relationship, whether it's with another human, whether it's with a job, whether it's with a project, um, that there's a moment where it feels like, Oh my God, this is thrilling. This is so exciting. I just want to be consumed by this. 
And then depending on how long uh, this relationship lasts, there's times where it feels like this is not fun. Like this is not what I signed up for. I was signing up for roses and rainbows and unicorns and you're making me actually deal with all of the logistics. And that's not fun. Like I'm an artist and I need to be respected. And it's just one of these like this flip-flopping set of emotions of feeling like I, I, well, I wanted this, but do I really want this? Like, do I doubt myself? Should I just plug through? Like, or, you know, who am I? What am I doing? How did I get here? So I think, um, in that way, it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say that I have a, a unique experience more than anybody else. Um, there are times when what I'm doing is absolutely a job and I have to remind myself, like, you are here to create an experience that people are paying for and you need to deliver this. This is your job. You were hired. You agreed. You have a contract. Now do your fucking job. Don't complain about it to anybody else other than your dance partner and be professional. <laughs> um, and then there's other times where it feels like I, I can't wait to get to class. I can't wait to work with the students. I can't wait to see what they uncover that day with me. Um, or to train for something where it feels like, oh, I'm getting to create again. And then there's other times where I feel like I have nothing to say. I have nothing to create. I don't have a voice. I don't have an opinion. Like I, I can do my job. I can show up. I can teach and I can get through it and I can get through this job really well, but I'm not passionate about it. I'm just doing it because I'm just doing it. And the first couple of times that I hit those humps, I remember being really scared because it felt like, Oh my God, what are like, what am I supposed to do? This is my passion. Like I understood the cycle through going to school where our, like when I was trying to graduate university or when I did that there was times that I was really passionate about the stuff I was studying. And then there's other times that I really just didn't care, but it was a prereq. So I had to get it done so I could get to the classes I wanted to take. So I knew it there, but it was different because I wasn't paying to have the experience where I could say, well, I'm paying to go to class. If I don't want to go to class, I don't have to go. It was, no, you've made an agreement. Like you have said that you are going to create a learning experience for somebody. And this is a big deal if you don't do it. So like oscillating between, well, you said you were, so therefore you should. And, but I'm an artist. Like I need to feel it. I want to be passionate about this and like finding that balance. So the balance or the imbalance exists. And I think as it continues to happen, depending on how long you stick with something, it becomes far less scary. And you just know like, okay, so just plow through or, ah, here's what worked last time. I'll try that again. Or here's what didn't work. I won't do that. I'll try something else this time. So, um, I have gone through a couple of cycles where it felt like I'm not interested in this. I I'm going to leave this world. I need to find a replacement because I don't want to leave my dance partner hanging. So, you know, who am I going to find? And then through that process, I noticed, wow, there's nobody coming up the pipeline. Wow. I'm going to need to make somebody, I'm going to have to help create the next generation. But then that gave me a new sense of purpose. So through that next sense of purpose, it was, okay, I'm really excited about teaching and I want to find people to work with. And like, I have now started mentoring other, uh, individuals and I am trying to find gigs that I can take with newer dancers who think that they want this life or they want to try on this lifestyle so that I can kind of mentor them the way that Kevin mentored me, um, and trying to help people like better understand what it takes to train and to kind of pull back the curtain and say, this is actually what the job looks like. It's not just like being a superstar, like it's groundhog's day again and again and again and again. <laughs> and sometimes you're in different cities. And like, if you're like me, you have two suitcases. So it's all, almost always the same clothes. Um, but there's great people 
And when you make a network of friends and you get to see them and you get to create adventures around the world, and that's really exciting. Um, or as I had to like reset my site. So I understood what I was doing and why I was doing it. And to get to be a part of somebody's learning opportunity, to get to be a part of somebody's great moment. It's the time that they've set aside for themselves. They've saved money so that they can come to this event to learn from somebody like me. Like that is such a gift that I have access to. So once I also changed my perspective on what I was doing, so it was less about me trying to like make it, uh, make money because also the reality of what we're doing is that there's just not as much money in dance as there is in tech. But to, to get to connect it to the purpose of why am I doing this? And it's like, well, I'm doing this because I want to give back to somebody else. I want to give back to a community that gave me so much. I want to get to, to be a part of those happy moments in other people's lives. And frankly, the fact that they're letting me do that, what a gift that is and what a great position I'm in. And I've been able to do a lot of great things with my position. Sometimes it's as simple as getting to teach somebody like how to better rock step, which is, um, for our listeners who are not our, uh, not, not Lindy hoppers. That would be one of the, the movements that we use in a rock step is, uh, standing on one foot, stepping backwards, and then returning to where you came. So, uh, you rock back and you step forward. So like, how can you help smooth something like that out? Cause even though it sounds so simple to do something so simple, but really, really done well, uh, done gracefully done powerfully, um, done simplistically, like in order to get somebody to do something simple, but yet done so well, takes a lot of practice, which is so funny because the basics, what people learn right from the beginning is what you work on tirelessly or endlessly, depending on how you look at it. So like to be a part of those moments, that's incredible. And then also to have an opportunity to use my status to like speak out against, uh, some of the, like sexual assaults that we've had in the scene. Like it's been really great to be in a position where I was able to use my voice to, to, to make a difference in a way that I think every, uh, like at least a lot of my peers hope to be able to do is how can you make your mark on society? And if I'm not remembered, that's also totally fine, but I am also hoping that I can make it so that women are also remembered in the history books of the Lindy Hop revival, because so many of the men are remembered and fewer of the, the females are. So even if I'm not remembered, but if I can help pave the way so that other women are more remembered, like I feel like I've definitely done my part. So that's, I think finding the sense of purpose is really the driving force. And I think those are the things that have helped me get through the sticky situations where it just felt like, oh God, I'm dragging. Um, and I would say I've been pretty lucky. Like I have done a couple of things fairly well. Um, but I'm by no means a jack of all trades. So I have a number of friends who are outstanding at just, or sorry, they are good at just about everything, but they have not really mastered anything. And I don't think that there's a correct way to do it. I definitely try to, uh, keep and let my friends know who are, uh, jacks of all trade, but masters of none that they're incredibly valued. And I just like try to lavish them with praise. Cause I think that's such a great skill to have. Um, but to be in the position that I'm in. I have to remember that other people like want the, the job that I have and want the, the level of appreciation or like want the stardom that they think that they might see, but to also just remind them like, you know, like I am just a person with a particular skill set, And when you live in this bubble, this skill set looks really impressive, but I can't be measured on who I am as a human for how 
great I am as a dancer because those things don't necessarily add up. You have to measure a person sure. on who they are as a person. So I feel like right now our scene is working on that. And that's kind of an, another sense of purpose. And like with all of the things that are happening politically right now, that is definitely made for quite a big discussion in the Lindy Hop scene. And I think, uh, at the world at large, but, um, like, I guess we're, what do you, what do you, what do you mean things happening politically? I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're oh, referring gotcha. to. Right um, now. so, uh, no, 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 that's all, that's a whole other three hour yeah, conversation. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So I guess to kind of, uh, to wrap that up, the idea of like, how, how do you know, like when to turn a passion into something more, I think in many ways you just have to try it. I mean, I would say from where I stand now, see if you can find a mentor, see if somebody is looking to mentor. See if there's somebody that is doing the job that you think you want to have and talk with them. See if you can make friends with them or like become friends with them. See if you can really find out what it is that they're doing and how is it that they spend their time and what is it that they're thinking about? Because if none of that seems interesting, then maybe that's not where you want to spend your time. Um, and I think it's a luxury to be able to turn one's passion into a job, but there's, it's a double-edged sword because there are definitely times where I feel like, wow, I'm not getting to do this for me anymore. I'm having to do this because I made an agreement and it doesn't matter that I'm not feeling it. My, my word is important and therefore I need to, you know, power through. So I think I would say try, like if you have an opportunity that you have, a an income on the side and you're seeing if you can kind of make the leap, I would say start, start whatever new exciting thing that you think you're up for. And if it starts to go well, talk to other people in the industry and see like what they're doing or what's missing in the industry. Is there a place that you could, is there a niche that you can fill? Um, and if you can't think of it, um, then maybe you're not quite ready to, to jump in. But if you find that you're also pretty successful or that like there's an opening, then maybe you just have to go for it. Like that was the other thing for me. I just went for it because it didn't occur to me that I could make it. So it felt like, oh yeah, I'm all in because you know, like as long if I get to do this for a year or two years, like it's okay that I don't have a real job, a quote unquote real job. So I'll just do this until I go find my real job. So like I had a great excuse, but I was also just out of college, just out of university. I didn't have a, a partner. I didn't have a, a romantic partner. I didn't have a dog. I didn't have plants. I didn't have a baby. Like I had, there, there were very few things I had to balance out. I, I can't even imagine what it's like to go through the idea of going, wow, I hate my job. I really love doing this thing. I would love to make it a passion, but I don't know if it would work, but I've got uh, a romantic partner and children and a mortgage and a car payment. Like I have no idea how stressful or how scary that must be. Um, but I, you know, I would say find a mentor, find a coach. Like I have a business coach and like, she has definitely helped me like focus in on the important things and kind of turn down like the worry dial a little bit, which I, I'm very prone to do, or I guess I must love worrying based on the amount of time I spend doing it. Um, so like she helps me like keep myself in check. So I don't know, find a mentor, find a business coach and like, see if you can kind of take it from there. I would say maybe those are like the wise words maybe of the day. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a really great place to wrap up. Um, Joe, this has been awesome. One, qu one last question that I wanted to ask you. It's the same question that I asked to all the guests on the show. 
Um, you obviously you've got a lot going on with regards to travel and business and taxes and, <laughs> you know, trying to fig figure out, you know, the things that kind of keep you entertained and keep you and keep you sane and maintaining a like somehow on earth maintaining a relationship with somebody while you're constantly globe hopping. Like w th there's a, there's a lot of different moving parts that if there aren't any, efficiencies built in some way somehow that you would just frankly lose your mind after doing this for so so long um what in recent memory from what you can remember what purchase have you made um of a hundred dollars or less that's you would say has made the most dramatic impact on one of those areas of your life. It, it could be limited to your business and your travel and your dancing, or it could be something completely unrelated. It doesn't have to be related to our topic area, although it can be like what, what uh, can, can you think of anything that, that, that you've had and it could be, like as to bend the rules a little bit, it couldn't be a subscription type thing where it's a hundred dollars a year or whatever it might be. But, um, can you think of anything that would sort of fit that mold? Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say my T-Mobile service and I feel like I should be a rep for them because of how many people I talk to about their service. But a couple of years ago, they made it so that they had worldwide connection and it was for the same cost. So I now no longer wow, have to really? deal with SIM cards, which I cannot tell you what a pain in the butt dealing with SIM cards in a new country every single week, because sometimes the SIM cards from the last country wouldn't work in the new country. And then I would have time without data. And for me, I need to be connected to the, the world. I need to be connected to the internet. So for me, the like I cannot imagine traveling without connection to the internet. And because of my monthly payments, which are less than a hundred dollars a month, um, to T-Mobile, I am able to have one phone number. I'm able to do unlimited texting and I have unlimited data all for one low price of less than a hundred dollars a month. So for me, you seriously could do a I, for that. I, I should be hired. I'm, I keep waiting for a phone call. I don't know how they'll find me, but I'm sure somebody could track me down. They have my number. Har, har, har. So um, th that's what I would say. If you are going to start traveling, get on T-Mobile. Nobody else has a better service. Like nobody else has better service or offers a better deal. And you can only get it in the United States unless they've changed that. But a lot of my European friends, they get on family plans with the Americans. So T-Mobile, big shout out. And that's what I would say would make everybody's life easier is to be connected. That is awesome. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has really been great. Thank you for having me. I am honored to be able to uh, have somebody else listen to me, stand on my soapbox and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no problem. Now, it, for speaking speaking of your soapbox, I'm sure you have them outside of this podcast. <laughs> um, for people that are listening, how can people find you if they want to learn more about you either through your learn about your dance business. They want to try and hire, hire you that way or bring you to an event or maybe outside, outside of that, there's people that maybe be looking for a mentor, kind of like what you were mentioning, or if they just want to kind of follow you and figure out what crazy, what crazy crap you're doing <laughs> these, you know, these days, like where, where can uh, people a find number you? of different places. So, uh, you could find me and my partner at our website, Joe and Kevin.com J O A N D K E V I N.com. 
Uh, you could also find me at my website, which is where more of my personal stuff is about mentoring and like online uh, training that I'm doing for a number of people at johoffberg.com, J-O-H-O-F-F-B-E-R-G.com. And if you are interested in learning from me and Kevin, you could go to our online school at ilindy.com. And if you wanted to have a great time partying with us down in Mexico, you could come to Swing Break Mexico at the end of February. And the website for that is swingbreakmexico.com. So if for some reason you decide that you want to listen to some swing music and hang out on a beach and have cocktail hour with you and your closest 200 friends that you just met, uh, I would say Swing Break Mexico is a place that you should totally come visit. That sounds awesome. I'll be linking to everything that you just said in the show notes for the, for the show. But yeah, Joe, this is amazing. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Marvelous. Have a fabulous evening. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Small Moves Podcast. I know this episode ran a little bit longer than some of the others that I've had lately, so I do apologize for that. But the conversation was just great with Joe. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I really did as well. Uh, do me a favor and log on to the community Facebook page at smallmoves.co forward slash community and let me know what you thought about my conversation with Joe and if you'd like to hear more interviews like this in the future. And also, if you wouldn't mind checking in on iTunes and leaving me an honest review about the show on iTunes. iTunes is a glorified search engine and they really use the reviews and the number of reviews on shows to help other people that actively listen to podcasts to help them find the show. And that would be really be, that would really be helpful for me. So I would really appreciate if you could leave me an honest review on iTunes. That being said, I really hope that you guys enjoyed the conversation and I will talk to you next time. You got this.